You're listening to Make and Multiply, a podcast for the people of Emmaus Road Church, and this is our Monday episode. We call Hear and Obey. We are in Exodus 32, 1 through 14, and my name is Ryan Chase, one of the pastors at Emmaus Road, joined today by Mark Christensen, and uh, I'm going to read this text, and then we'll talk about it. Mark, I'm looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts and how God is speaking to you through this, as well as the, I think this text raises great questions. Right. I have to really wrestle with it. So uh, here we go. Exodus 32, 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall it be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Lord, we receive your word, believe that you speak to us through it, and that this word is for us, for our our instruction and edification. And so we pray that you would uh, help us to know you more, that you would sanctify us by your word, which is truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a famous scene in the book of Exodus, probably up there along with the the Red Sea crossing, Mm -hmm. something very vivid in our mind's eye about this golden calf and the people gathered in front of it worshiping this idol um an interesting scene as well i think it just you know it provokes certain questions and yeah and, and uh yeah i know in, in preparing to preach it I had to wrestle through um hey, what does this reveal about god what does this indicate about how he relates to his people so curious to hear your thoughts as well. Um, and that's one of the questions we typically ask uh, as, as people are talking about the text and the sermon in gospel communities, just asking, you know, what what questions did this raise? What uh, thoughts did it bring to mind? So great place to start when we're reading through a text. How, how does it land on you? Yeah, I think first thing when I look at this text, 
you read through and you see, okay, the people gathering up against Aaron saying, make us gods who shall go before us. So then thinking about, okay, what is the people's sin here? Mm. Um, And I think here you see that the people lacked faith. God had just spoken to Moses. Moses had spoke everything that God had just said, you know, the law that he had just given. Um, So they heard from God, but they said, Moses is up there. He's not coming down. Yeah. We can't see God. Therefore, Aaron, make us something that we can see. Yeah. Um, so they're lacking faith in God's word. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, we need to see more. Yep. We need to know more in order for this to be true. Yeah. Which is the same thing that we run into every single so day. So relatable. We read God's promises and it's like, if I just had a little bit more, yep. a little more confirmation. Um, and that's sin. So Yeah. I think it's so common for us to feel that way. You know, I don't feel God's presence. Um, we can easily kind of just wallow in in those doubts about, mm. is God really near? Is he really for me? Is he really good? Because I don't see. or What I, what I am seeing with my eyes in my situation doesn't look good right. to me. And so it's just so relatable. And I think... Uh, time and again throughout the book of Exodus, when I consider what these people did see and experience and think how many of us would say, yeah, if I could see that, if I could see Mount Sinai smoking and Mm. rumbling, if I could walk through the Red Sea, like how could I ever not believe? I think the people of Israel are a great uh, proof to us that this is the human sin condition. We disbelieve God's word. We are frequently dissatisfied with what God has said. We'd rather see something with our eyes. We're quicker to believe what our physical senses experience. Um, and then to turn to doubt and unbelief in moments where there's some discrepancy between what we're seeing and what we're, what we've heard from God. So, you know, I mentioned yesterday, the the Red Sea crossing, they look up, they see Pharaoh's army coming. Well, who would not panic in a situation like that, Mm. but they've already forgotten promises from God. So it's just so relatable, um, the experience of the people here, I think. Yeah. And they say, you know, we don't know what's happened to Moses. He's been up on this mountain for 40 days. Um, we have no idea. And so we're out here left out to dry. Um, and they devise, we're not satisfied with what God has already said. Yeah. We need this image, uh, to look to, to pray to, to serve. Um, yeah, some kind of something to give them comfort and security in. Here's what we need to believe uh, yeah. in or look to. You know, when we read narrative literature in scripture, one of the questions that we're thinking about is, you know, what's the emotional impact? Uh, what what stands out? What surprises or or shocks us? Because that's the nature of narrative stories unfold, and, mm-hmm. and usually there's some twist. This at least good stories have that good stories have that yeah and this scene is uh, the thing that's so shocking is the trajectory of exodus to this point you know at mount sinai the 10 commandments the instructions for the tabernacle moses on the mountain for 40 days with god like everything's trending in the right direction they're out of egypt uh and then it just it's so abrupt how quickly they forsake and Mm -hmm. and that thought of you know, like a bride committing adultery on her honeymoon, like just the immediacy of it. And God expresses that to Moses in verse eight, how quickly they have turned from 
the ways that I commanded them. You know, it's, it's, it's not just that they sinned, but that they sinned so quickly, so immediately. Right. And it really, one commentator says about this text, um, it, it's, it's really the first major sin in the book of Exodus. Mm. Like we had that part in the wilderness where there's some grumbling and right. some discontentment. Um, and, and it all seems fairly understandable because they're, well, they're worried about what they're going to eat and what they're drink. They, they don't know yet. This is blatant right after the law has been given blatant violation of the law. So mm-hmm. it, it is clearly a transgression of the law and it's so fast. <laughs> it just, yeah. We just had the law and, and then this, like how could they fall so horribly? Yeah. And how quick that happens just as, you know, new Testament believers, uh, Jesus come died for our sins. It just makes me realize at least how much we need God's sustaining hand on our life. Yeah. Because without God's grace, uh, without being able to go to his word, mm-hmm. um, having the comforter, the spirit with us, I'm able to fall just as easily. And so yeah. um, we're prone in that way. And so we look to him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it guards us, doesn't it? Against um, self-righteousness and yeah, legalism right. of thinking, all right, well, God's law is good. I love God's law. That's enough. Well, his law is good. But our hearts have to be changed from the inside out because mm-hmm. these people had the law. The law did not change their idolatrous hearts. If we just take God's law and say, okay, I, I can do that on my own strength, mm. we're going to be prone to the exact same thing. Um, we need the sanctifying work of the Spirit in us to change us from the inside out. So you, you, we see immediately then the failure of the law, which is hinting at what the New Testament author of Hebrews talks about. Um, there was a need for a new and better covenant because this one didn't change people's hearts. Uh, so immediately after this covenant has been ratified, we, you start to get this hint that something more is going to be needed. Mm-hmm. And, and so already it's pointing to Jesus in that sense that a new covenant is going to be needed, enacted on better promises, a better mediator is going to be needed. So it, it, it's just pointing us already in that direction. Yeah. Then you have, starting in verse 7, the Lord you know, still speaking to Moses, sees what's happening, mm-hmm. speaks to Moses, say, go down for your people, mm-hmm. talking to Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Um, they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They made this golden calf and so on. Mm-hmm. And so God's seeing what they've done and says, you know, they've corrupted themselves. They can't be in my presence. Um, they defiled themselves. They made themselves unclean mm-hmm. uh, just at the base of the mountain where they know Moses is up there yeah. speaking with God. Yes. Yeah, I think what God communicates to Moses here is his righteous response to idolatry and to sin. Um, those words are jarring, though. Uh, honestly, in verse 7, when, when God says to Moses, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it'd be possible to misread this like there's some blame shifting or right. that God is, you know, trying to get out of this or something. Um, Pointing fingers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But really, I think he is identifying Moses as the mediator for these people. He, he deals with Moses. You know, yeah. Moses does not know what's going on at the foot of the mountain. The only way he comes to know about it is that God tells him. So God knows what's happening down there. God could have just destroyed the people as a consequence for their sin. Uh, but first he goes to Moses and he deals with Moses as an intermediary, mm-hmm. uh, as a representative of the people, which is what I think he's 
communicating here as well as the fact that their sin really does cause a break of fellowship between them it has put them out of fellowship with god and something has to be done about that Mm -hmm. yeah and i think god speaking to moses about this i think there's something we can draw out of this about moses's permanence Mm -hmm. as the mediator between Mm -hmm. god and the people it's not like there's just these small unique moments where okay there's going to be a guy it's going to be moses but no, Moses was that guy yes. um, who mediated God's word, uh, God's presence, you know, through the instructions of building the tabernacle yep. uh, to the people. And so we see that um, leader, uh, in a sense, his faith, mm-hmm. Moses' faith to speak with God mm-hmm. um, and later on here to uh, implore God or to cry out to God. Yep. And then... Moses prays, he intercedes. Um, I, th- I think, you know, before we turn the mics on, you had mentioned just questions that might come up in people's minds and reading this. Um, how did you say that again? Yeah, I think you come to a text like this and questions will usually come up. Okay, it seems like Moses is trying to catch God up to speed on what he's already done, what he's already said, what he's already promised. Has God forgotten uh you know, is God hot tempered right now? And, you know, is he sinfully angry? Mm. Um, and so I think those are all questions that could rise to someone's head. Yep. And a lot of unbelievers will come to a text like this and say, this is the God you're trying to defend right now. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it almost looks like you could read it and, and come to, I, I think, a wrong conclusion, but a conclusion or the impression that God is fickle, that he is changing his mind, um, that he's overreacting. And then, yeah. you know, what? why is it that Moses is talking him down from this right. rash decision um, that Moses is the one reminding him of what he's committed to doing as if, you know, God needs to be reminded of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, has God forgotten? So there's a whole uh, branch of uh, false teaching, bad theology called open theism, that teaches God does not know the future. Mm-hmm. It's open in the sense that the future is open. It's unknown to God, contrary to what we believe that God not only knows the future, but he's sovereign over it and yeah. rules over it and, and rules it by his decrees. They say he's the great reactor. <clears throat> yes, yes. So he's always reacting. He's just as surprised as we are when mm-hmm. people behave in certain ways. And they like to point to verse 14 here. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And that word relented, um, that Hebrew word in other contexts can be translated repented. And so they, they say, see, God, God changed his mind. Um, and, and that's why I made that point yesterday that the change is not in God. God is always wrathful towards sin. Right. And when he expresses his wrath towards sin, that's totally consistent with his character. And it's consistent with his word, what he said in the second commandment about those who make idols and mm-hmm. his judgment against that. That's consistent. That's not God overreacting. Um, and his mercy is also consistent with his character. And that's going to come up again here in Exodus. God is a, a God who's merciful and gracious. And he's merciful toward those who repent towards mm. those who are humble and those who seek him. And that's exactly what Moses on behalf of the people is doing in this passage. Uh, so the change is not in God, but it, God's, uh, you know, what may seem to differ is when God states, if this happens, then this will be the consequence. And if this, then that God speaks like that 
all over the Old Testament. Yeah. These blessings for obedience, these curses for disobedience. And God gives threats and warnings which motivate God's people. Um, his decrees never change. His decrees are fixed. His purposes are, are fixed. But when God says uh, to Moses, get out of my way and I'll destroy these people, there is this implication. Moses is in the way. If he stays, mm -hmm. he can mediate. And that's yeah. exactly what he does. So it, it's God who mercifully even wills to work through a mediator who's representing the people. Yeah. And Moses knows what's at stake here yeah. um, because the nations are watching. Why shouldn't, he says in verse 12 here, yep. why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? So Moses is telling God, God, remember, you know, people are going to see you have concern for your holy name. Yeah. Um, and so the people aren't going to glorify you mm -hmm. uh, if they see this. And so I think Moses pinpoints it at the right spot where remember your name. And God always acts for the sake of his name right. in justice as well as in mercy. Yeah, he's, he's clearly making his case, uh, building his appeal based on the character of God, the promises of God, the past work of God, not appealing to anything deserving in the people. And that's instructive for us. When we pray, you know, it is a, an incredible thing that God wills to work in the world in response to the prayers of his people. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't have to do that, but that certainly builds our faith. It uh, causes us to depend on God more, um, strengthens relationship, fellowship between God's people and God, that he works in the world in response to the prayers of his people. And the way that Moses prays is just instructive. When we are building our, pray, our prayers, we can pray God's word back to him. We can plead his promises. We can mm -hmm. appeal to his character and his work in the past. We can um, you know, root our prayers in our desire for God's name to be glorified on earth. Th these are ways that we can also pray when we're making a case to God. And again, it would just be a misreading of the text to think Moses is bringing some new information to God mm -hmm. or that God reacted rashly and then has to be reminded by Moses. And then God goes, oh yeah, actually that's right. I forgot about that. Or I overlooked that, or I didn't consider that. Um, nothing in the book of Exodus or anywhere else in scripture implies that God is like that. Um, and these things clearly are not, this is not news to God, but it does remind us when God acts in mercy, even that is for the sake of his name and consistent with his saving mm -hmm. purposes. So I, I think that's um, yeah, it, it really the, at the heart of this text, the, the idolatry of the people is shocking and surprising, but the real turn is that there's mercy at all, that they're not just destroyed right there. And, and so really the character of God, his mercy is, is at the heart of the text. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you see obviously God's mercy. Um, but Moses standing in there as the mediator, mm -hmm. um, not removing himself. Um, cause God does say to him in verse 10, um, that I may, they, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Moses, I think you were saying this earlier, Ryan, if he was self-seeking at all, yep. he could have said, okay, let me step out of the way. Yep. Um, but he didn't. And I think we can make that parallel then to Christ mm -hmm. and his commitment to uh, seeing out God's will. Yes. You know, he's praying in agony in the garden. Um, Therefore, not my will, but yours be done. Yep. Um, his commitment to walk towards the cross, knowing the penalty that he was going to have to face. That's right. Um, standing in the breach. 
that we wouldn't be consumed for our sins. Mm-hmm. Um, just seeing the mercy, even in a mediator um, yes. who's able to stand there and plead our case before God. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really does. I think this whole narrative helps us better understand and treasure Christ as our intercessor. Mm-hmm. We, we need an intercessor because if, if we had to stand there and make our own case, what would we say right. for ourselves? But to have a sinless, and in this case, you know, Moses foreshadows a sinless mediator because yeah. he was not down there participating in the idolatry. You, know, you get the sense Aaron would have been disqualified to be the mediator here to mm-hmm. plead the case because he's participating in it along with the people. Uh, he's facilitating it. Moses is up up the mountain not participating, and so he represents that sinless mediator who can make this case. And to know that, as Scripture says in Romans 8, 34, and Hebrews, I think it's chapter 7, Christ intercedes for us. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, he because he's been raised from the dead, he always lives to intercede for yeah. us. Uh, and, and just... The, the confidence and the assurance that that gives to us, like how do I know I can be spared from the wrath of God because Christ is interceding for me yeah. because he's pleading and, and he knows how to make that argument perfectly. Um, and God deals mercifully with us through a, a mediator an intercessor. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have in Christ. Yeah. It's, it's a, it should be a great assurance to our souls. Yeah. And I love when you get to Hebrews and it speaks about Christ the conquering lamb, he sits down mm-hmm. at God's right hand, once again, showing that permanence yes. of our mediator before God. Yes. So there will never be a time when in our sin we feel ashamed or feel like we can't come to God yeah. when we have this meteor there who's happy to plead our case. Yes. Um, not based on our own uh, merit or righteousness, but based on his own finished work. Yes. Yeah, we are the fickle ones. We are the ones who are often unfaithful, we sin against God, but Christ is, is never moved from that mm-hmm. position interceding for us. Yeah. Um, and so that's why we can come with confidence because of him and not because of us. Yeah. It, it, it's just a powerful and surprising um, communication of the gospel in the Old Testament mm-hmm. at the foot of Mount Sinai with a golden calf. It, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Good. Well, thank you, Mark. It's good to talk through this with you.